0: be seated. We'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back with Miss Robin. And while they're uh, headed back there, I'll invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, to open it to First uh, John chapter 5. There's a chance we'll finish First uh, John today, and there's a chance we will not. just depends on how, how this goes. Um, I appreciate uh, Miles the song, Psalms 40 um, what you know when you look at the book of Psalms is the, these are songs that God's people sang in many different instances and they were didactic they were teaching in nature I give the messianic psalms that we sing about the coming of Christ and the Savior and then we have psalms of lament, similar to what we just sang I don't know, I don't know anyone who's walked through the last three weeks without asking that same question, how long O Lord? Um, In daily struggles, in big struggles, you ever prayed that, Lord Jesus come quickly, come make everything right again, you hear the news of uh, Uvalde, you hear the news in Oklahoma, hear the news in Ukraine, you hear this news in Afghanistan, and you, you join with that prayer of the saints of all the years, how long, O Lord. I do love how many of the Psalms, not all of them, many of the Psalms return back to the refrain, but God, I know you're faithful and I put my hope and trust in you. Even when I can't see you working, right, I trust you. Let's pray and then we'll get into uh, God's word today. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you how it covers even seasons of lament for us, seasons of understanding and difficulty and doubt and questioning and an unsettled spirit. How it celebrates uh, with us as, as we celebrate the incredible things that you're doing in the life of our families and those we know. The word says of itself that it's profitable to teach us and correct us for training in righteousness for the weary Father I pray that you would bring comfort and strength for the confused that you would bring clarity for the doubting that you would reveal truth for the discouraged that you would bring courage it's in Jesus name that we pray amen Our passage today will be uh, 1 John chapter 5. I'm going to jump in in verse 13 and read through verse 18. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that we ask, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, And whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that we should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God... Does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is the word of the Lord. First John has been incredible. If you've been with us for the past uh, seven, eight weeks, we've been walking through John's letters, the letters of John. This John wrote the Gospel of John. Um, He wrote these letters uh, to the scattered church. And then he will also write the book of Revelation. And he writes these letters some 50 years after the other gospels had been written. And so the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, had come forward from uh, those authors and had been spread through the early churches. And then John is going to come back after walking, living this new Christian life with Jesus not here on earth. And dwelled by the spirit for some 50 years and in it he's going to correct some wrong thinking he's going to uh, speak very directly as you even heard uh, here he's going to encourage those believers he's going to give us what I love about even this passage is he's going to give us assurance and uh, as we've studied it John is one of the closest disciples Jesus has dealt with this subject of assurance a lot and He comes over these themes, these four or five themes, uh, quite often. Things like how you can know for sure that you're saved or at peace with God. How you can know that what you believe is actually true and not just situational awareness. How you can be assured of God's love and his control in your life. And how to maintain that kind of certainty in the face, even as we sang a minute ago, of disappointment and opposition. And I'll be honest, as as a boy who grew up in church... Some of these things are things I've struggled with for my whole life. For one, how can you know for sure that you're saved? By the time I graduated high school, I'd probably prayed the sinner's prayer 500 times. Every time Ken Freeman gave an invitation to be saved, I took it. Uh, And then if they asked me to show my hands or come down or throw my stick in the fire or my rock in the lake or whatever they asked, I certainly did that too. I didn't want to invalidate my prayer by failing to confess Jesus before men, as they said, so... Honestly, it got a little embarrassing. I walked a lot of aisles. I've been saved at youth camps all over the South. I was baptized three times, twice uh, in church, and once in a pool at a church camp that I never told my parents about. um, Because I didn't want them to have to buy me another Bible. Um, It's true. Scripture tells us, and here's the the scary thing, and what validates even some of that. And we're going to answer that, and John clearly answers it in, in this passage that we just read. But Scripture also tells us in Matthew 7 that there's a lot of people who've prayed a prayer to receive Jesus and consequently they think they're going to heaven because of that prayer and they're tragically mistaken. About a decade ago, Barna did a study, and I'm sure it'd be even more now, that shows that 50% of Americans say they have prayed some kind of what we would call a sinner's prayer even though half of them have no regular presence in any kind of church or have lifestyles or worldviews that in no way differ from those outside of the Christian faith. But when these people hear that you need Jesus to be saved, they think, oh yeah, I've been there, I've done that, I prayed the prayer, I filled out the card, I shook a pastor's hand, my grandma was even there, it was super meaningful, she wrote my Bible. Matthew 7, again, talks about a group of people who are going to say to Jesus on the last day, this is the day of judgment, Oh, I've, I've been there and done that. Lord, Lord. And whom Jesus turns away with these awful words that literally scares me as a pastor. Depart from me, I never knew you. Most all these people will have prayed a prayer. Many of them going into eternity confident of, their, of a salvation that they actually do not possess. And again, as a pastor, this scares me. I I watched an image, uh, I saw an image on uh, social media this week. Of You may have seen it too, of a picture of a church and all these people gladly rushing in. And about halfway through the church, the foundation drops off into hell. And all these people were going in through the church and ending up in hell, separated from Christ for eternity. With this false assurance because they had been in a church. Now the denomination I grew up in, they had this slogan as they kind of started vacation Bible schools across America a million more in 44 and their whole goal was to lead people in the center's prayer to have converts and I think their heart was pure but because the church let me just say the church in the west because the churches in most countries are not like this but the church in the west because we have Because we have lacked a real biblical understanding and because we have not walked in real discipleship relationships, a lot of people have a false assurance, about again, about a salvation that they do not possess. These people in Matthew 7, that Jesus turns away, I'm sure that they prayed a prayer. I'm sure many of them are so confident of this because they look back on this prayer. But let me tell you the things that I... I don't want to scare anybody, but there are several things in that passage, and we're not going to get into that, but John echoes it, so that's why I want to start there. That they used to assure themselves of salvation that are not legitimate. One, it was a prayer that they prayed. Just because you pray a prayer, it is not some kind of spiritual incantation that you said the right words like an ATM, like your ATM, you walk up, you put your card in, you type in the right code and out spits the money. A lot of people look at salvation that way that i just got to say the right prayer, that I'm a sinner and you're a savior, and then if i prayed that prayer and I shook someone's hand or whatever the case may be, then I am good with Jesus. Other people are assured of their salvation because of religious and ministry activity. These people in Matthew 7 even were very active in their churches and they went on mission trip and they knew the verses and they volunteered and they were even active in their prayer ministry. It says that they even helped throw demons out of people in Jesus' name. And yet Jesus tells to them, depart from me, I never knew you. People sometimes use the fact that they're immoral, that they feel guilty about their sin. And these people in seven, Matthew 7, I'm sure, were more people, and I'm sure they felt guilty. Lots of people who aren't Christians feel guilty about their sin. That's one of the primary reasons we have the industry of psychology. It's built upon dealing with guilts. Judas felt so guilty that he went out and hung himself after he betrayed Christ. Feeling bad about your sin doesn't prove that you are indeed saved. Because you're not saved because you pray a magical prayer. You're not saved because of religious activity. God saves us when we repent and believe the gospel. And you can express that repentance in faith in a prayer, and you probably should. But it's not the prayer itself that saves us. It's the repentance And faith, the belief behind that prayer in which we lay hold of salvation. And so as we get to the message today in 1 John, I think this chapter specifically, this letter, comforts those who are unnecessarily troubled, and it also might trouble those that are unjustifiably comforted. First, let's ask this question. Does God really want us to know for sure that we're saved? Some might say no. At least God doesn't want us to know where we stand with him because that's a way of keeping us in line. Like dangling a carrot in front of us. You better act right or you're not going to get to heaven. If you don't act right, you're going to go to hell forever. Which, that's a scary thing. That's why I got saved 500 times. Note that this is what the Pharisees did, and you saw how mad it made Jesus, how they tried to hang justification with God, right? Like a carrot in front of people, you better act right. And I guess the thought is if you guaranteed someone that they can't be fired, then they're going to be lazy in their job, and then they're not going to show up for work. What can they do? They're just going to fire me? They can't fire me, so I'm not too worried about it. Or likewise, people think that if someone had the assurance of salvation they'd get lazy they wouldn't even have to do all the things so does god even want us to know and second how can we know and john answers both of these questions in this one verse look at verse 13 does god even want us to know that we're saved verse 13 i write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god if you highlight in your Bible a circle, this might be where you want to do it, that you may know that you have eternal life. Really for two reasons. God does want us to know, and here are the reasons. One, because he loves us. And when you love someone, you want them to know that you love them. You don't want this, them to guess you've ever wrote in a car, uh, written a card to your kids or your mom or dad or your spouse, you likely tell them that you love them because if you love someone, you want to express that love to them, and God loves us. Secondly, the only way we'll ever develop real love for God is if we are assured that he loves us. real love only grows in the soil of security. Real love only gl- grows in the soil of security. When you make someone behave by threatening that you that, that that by threatening them, you might coerce their behavior, but you'll never captivate their heart. This is how you, you, you know this in marriage. Those you've married or that you've seen kids, you don't just all force them. I'll stay married to you if you act this way. That's not that's not love. And John is committed to this point to explain that real love only grows in the soil of security. And he talked about it at length in this letter. But I want to jump back to his his gospel that he wrote and in the gospel of John. He uses some of the most intimate language, two metaphors to really communicate this point. That God does want us to know that we are his beloved children. He uses these two metaphors. First is that of a loving father. Jesus says in John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A good father does not want his kids wondering whether or not he loves them or he's committed to them. I travel uh, quite a bit for my job to help train and uh, encourage and support church planters. And when I go out away on a trip, I don't gather all my kids in the foyer and say, kids, dad's going to go on a trip and he's going to be back soon or maybe I won't. Maybe I'm not really your dad and maybe I have another family in another city and I'm actually going to be with them. You're just going to have to wait here worrying about this until I come back. I might return from this trip with a gift for you or I might not return at all or I might return with a poisonous snake for you to have. Sit around and think about that while I'm gone and maybe that will compel you to become better children. How ridiculous would that sound? That would not produce love and loyalty in my children. It might produce fear-based obedience. But it's only a matter of time until fear-based obedience turns into father-loathing rebellion. If I don't want my children feeling like orphans, would God, who is the best father, want his kids fearing that they may be orphans? And John says in John 14, no way, bro. I write these things to you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. It's the first metaphor of a loving father, and then of a betrothed bride. In that same conversation in John 14, Jesus compared his disciple to a betrothed bride, just like a man assures his fiance that he loves her and he's coming back for her. Jesus told his disciples that he for sure would be coming back for them. He said in verse 3 of John 14, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you may be where I am. When Ashley and I got engaged, I was still doing some ministry, traveling, and I would leave. And when you're that starstruck in love, two weeks seems like months and months and months. I remember actually coming back from one of those trips and eating at, uh, at Trejo's and uh, I would not seen Ashley in like 10 days, and then we were just staring into each other's eyes over chicken enchiladas and, uh, you know, real love, right? And this guy comes and talks, starts talking to us, a guy I haven't seen in a while, and about after five minutes, I was like, bro, you got to sit down, dude. I'm here to see her. I, I, I want to catch up with her. Some of you know that uh, Connor is engaged, and he's going to be married uh, in a few months. And uh, that's pretty exciting, and most of you probably won't get invited to the wedding, sorry to say that, because he can only invite like 100 people total, and she's inviting 75, and you probably don't know her. So. But he probably still wants your presents, so just bring him gift cards, right? I was talking to her last week, and she was leaving to go study abroad, and so if, if Connor looks like a little lost, lovesick puppy while he's wandering around here, doesn't get to see her for a month, that's why. But you get the illustration, right? Like a betrothed bride, like a loving father, Jesus uses the same illustration of this love struck couple longing to be with each other to compare his love for us. Here's the gospel secret. Assurance in the gospel has a greater power to produce virtue and love in our hearts than the threats of law could ever do. The threats of law can coerce behavior, but it can't captivate hearts and affections. This is one of the major things that Martin Luther pushed back before the Protestant Reformation. The established church of his day believed that people would only obey when threatened with harsh consequences. So he decried as what he called the damnable doctrine of doubt. I don't know if we can say that in church, but he did, so we'll say it. He said, being afraid of judgment will produce a surface level adherence only. But underneath that thin veneer of obedience will rush a river of pride and fear and self-interest. The only way to develop real love for God is to have the fear removed. And this is what, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about in 1 John 4. Perfect love casts out fear. Love only grows. Love for God only grows in the soil of security. That's what John again says in 1 John 4. We love him. Why? Because we're commanded or threatened with hell if we don't? No, no, no. It says we loved him. Why? Because he first loved us. Assurance of the love of God for us is what produces love for God in us. And if you're having trouble walking with God, an anger or habits you can't break, what you need is not more condemnation. You need to know the sweet assurance of his love. You need to know grace. This is what the church is. If we're not a body of grace-filled, grace-oozing people, then what are we doing? This is what we know, grace, that we did not deserve salvation, but God freely bestowed it upon us through his son. Everything we do spiritually grows out of that. Again, I hate to keep referring to past messages. We talked about this in the gospel, that the gospel is inside out. What God is doing inside of us so we don't go and say, man, I got I to drink less or cuss less or whatever the, the thing is. No, God begins to do something inside of us that makes the things we used to love, now we hate. Because he's changed us. Everything we do spiritually grows out of that. You'll never go anywhere spiritually until you're first assured that he is yours and you are his. This is such beautiful covenant language. This loving father picture in Luke, 13, uh, in, in Luke 15, we could look at that. We could look at several places in the Gospel of John. Friends, God wants to know if you have repented and placed your faith in Jesus, that you are his beloved children. He wants you to know. The second question that I said we were going to answer is how, how then can we know? How can we be assured of these things? And again, in the pattern of John, he identifies two major things in these verses, both of which we've already talked about in the past. We might flesh a little bit out more next week, but look at verse 13 again. This is the first one, at least. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How can we know? Well, one, that you have placed your hope for heaven on Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. That's how we know. It's not based upon your spiritual resume or how many demons you've cast out or how many hours of prayer that you've done or how many years you've been in church or how many committees you've been on or what your daddy did or mama did or grandpa did or what your kids have done. It relies on none of that. None of that is on the spiritual resume. The only thing on the spiritual resume that makes you part of God's family is repentance and faith. That's it's only one line. Jesus, I am trusting your finished work on Calvary on my behalf. When John says you believe in the name, believe in the name means that you rest in the account of. Think about it like this. On a couple occasions, I've had the privilege to play some really nice golf courses that I cannot afford, nor can I gain entrance because it's a members-only club. And I'm not a great golfer, and I'm always really nervous when someone invites me to play in these places. But a couple months ago, I was in Phoenix, and there's an exclusive golf club that you cannot play unless you have a lot of money and you know someone. Well, I didn't know someone, but someone else knew someone. And so he was in my little golf party, and so we went to this beautiful golf course, and there's pros playing, and I should not be there. Like, I'm going to really injure one of these pros because, you know, I'm the guy that, like, skips over a couple fairways on accident. That's how, woof like this. And the marshal sees me playing and uh, knows that I don't belong there. And so he comes up and he says, uh, what's your name, sir? And I tell you, my name's Luke Allen. And he's looking furiously through some notes and he's calling on a radio. And my other buddy was getting ready to, that actually knew the rich guy that got us in there. And he's like, just say Bobby McCaslin, Bobby McCaslin. And that was the code. I said, oh, we're, we're guests of Bobby McCaslin, who I don't know. But evidently." He knows some people, right? And so he gets us, when, when we claim his name, it gives us the authority to be on the golf course. In the same way, this is like, 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 don't charge my credit card, charge Bobby. That's what I'm saying. When we believe in the name of the Son of God, we are resting not on ourselves. We are resting on his action to save us. Does that make sense? So we don't attempt to earn heaven by drawing on our own moral bank account or the people we know. We go under his name, withdrawing on his righteousness in our place. This is salvation. The gospel, by its very nature, produces assurance. Because when you're not depending on how well or how much you've done to earn your way to heaven, you're resting on his finished work that's already been completed. The analogy maybe you've heard me use before is a chair. You're all sitting in a chair. You can only be in one of two positions toward the chair, standing in your own strength, or seated in the rest of the chair. In the same way, you can only be in one of two positions as it relates to Christ, standing in your own authority, working feverishly to earn your way to heaven, or you can be seated in submission, standing in your own hopes of righteousness, or seated in the righteousness of Christ. Does that make sense? What if... Well, Luke, what if I told the chair how much I trusted it but never sat down? Well, that, that doesn't count. Your faith is not in the chair, it's not speculating of the strength of the chair. Well, well, how do you know if you made the decision to sit down? Well, let me ask you this How do you know that you made the decision to sit down when you were coming in? Then, if you remember making it, then, if you turn the chair over, and think, man, this chair looks sturdy. I think it can hold 150 or 200, or in my case, 300 pounds. These legs look sturdy, made like they're, they look like they're made from some polycarbonate blend. I'm sure that they are going to hold up to my weight. I believe it will hold me, and I choose to sit down. Did anybody do that? Only the freaks. No, no, you didn't do that. It was likely a subconscious decision. So how do you know that you trusted in the chair? What's the proof that you're sitting there now? How are you supposed to know that you made a decision to trust Jesus Christ? Because you are seated in him now. The best definition for salvation is current faith in Jesus Christ. That I believe. That I'm holding on to him. That I've placed all my hopes on him. And that provides assurance. Again, not on my own strength. If it's in my own strength, then when when I'm doing well, I have a false assurance. And when I'm doing terrible, I have to get saved again and again and again. But it's not on my own righteousness or in my own strength. If you are seated in him right now, if you have the posture of submission and dependence upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, then you are a believer. You are saved. But, Pastor, I don't remember praying the prayer. The prayer, again, is not the thing. Maybe you do remember a prayer, but you're no longer seated in him. Then who cares what you prayed because you didn't mean it. The point is not the prayer you prayed. The point, and I want you to listen, is the posture that you're in. Assurance of salvation comes not by remembering a prayer you prayed in the past, but by the posture that you're in in the present. A lot of Christians get caught up looking for assurance to a prayer they prayed to or five or ten or thirty years ago. Don't look and analyze the past prayer. Consider the present posture. So one way that John tells us that we can know for sure, I don't want you to have a doubt when you leave this place today, one way that we can know for sure that we are children of God, that we are the betrothed, Bride of Christ, that we are part of the church, that we're heirs to the kingdom, is that you have leaned all your hopes for heaven on the grace of Jesus in your place. The Second way, got to skip down to verse 18. We know that everyone, verse 18, who has been born of God does not keep on sinning But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. The second one, you've got your hopes on Jesus. The second is that you have a new nature. The Holy Spirit is inside of you, and he brings with him this new nature. Old Testament language is you get rid of the heart of stone and now you have a heart of flesh. Paul would use the the uh, the word uh, the phrase you're a new creation. If you've been born of God, you've been given this new nature with new desires, so you don't keep on sinning because you have these new desires. I had a professor one time who was teaching us how to parent. By putting, he said, this is how I learned to teach my kids to obey. I would put a really shiny object in front of them on the coffee table when they were just 18 months just beginning to walk around a little bit and I'd have a stick in my hand and I would tell them, don't touch it. And if they touched it, I would smack their hand. And I was thinking, this seems like terrible parenting. And it certainly is. God doesn't change us by putting sin in front of us, and then beating us if we touch it. No, this is the inside-out work of the gospel. He changes us by giving us a new heart. We're, to use the language of Jesus with Nicodemus, that you are born again or born from above. And when that happens, we don't love unfaithfulness and dishonesty and self-glorification and hatefulness like we used to. These things actually start to make us sick. Not because God's threatening us with a lightning bolt to punish us. No, because they become disgusting to us. Because they don't line up with our new nature. And when you do start to go back towards the sin, which we all do, this verse, I love this verse, it says that he protects us. He renews us. There's a play on words here that John's using. If you've been born of God then the one who was born of God, that's speaking of Jesus, protects you. All of us backslide. All of us fall. But the sign of someone who is actually saved is that they always come back. You could use the parable of the seed and the sower. That the seed fell upon four types of soil there you know the seed fell and was snatched up the seed on rocky places it fell on uh, you know some shallow soil didn't have root so it didn't last when the sun came out it fell and took root but it was quickly snatched away and then the fourth soil it actually fell and produced fruit this is what he's saying you are assured that you are one of God's children The assurance comes by the new desires, and this is in such contrast with the world, because your desire is not to hate, but it's to love. It's not to divide, but it's to reconcile. It's not to be stingy, but to be generous. It's not to use words to hurt, but use words to bless. This is part of the new nature. One of the signs that your salvation is genuine is that you never permanently fall away from it. God keeps bringing you back over and over. It says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, tell us what he is, John, he's a liar. If you say that you know God, but yet practice sin, and I don't mean struggle with sin, because we all do that, but you engage in sin willfully and defiantly, you are not one of God's children. This is what John says. If you fill up your weekend with all the things that put Jesus on the cross, then walking in here this morning and checking in with God and singing a few songs, that does not deceive God into thinking that your heart actually belongs to him. The simple fact is you can't love God and love the things that grieve him. You can't love God and be neutral towards the things that he hates. You can't have a mouth, as James would say, that sings praises to Jesus with a life that openly crucifies him. What did you do with your friends last night or last week? Do those things openly show your love for God? What are your conversations like? What's hidden in the closet of your life? What are you staring at on the internet and filling your mind with? Do those things show that you have a new nature and love for God? By the way, this explains the previous two verses that sometimes confuse people back up just to verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I don't say that we should pray for that or that person. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Just quickly, there are two kinds of sins that he's talking about. Every one of us stumbles into sin, and we need to pray, and we need others to pray for us. And when we see others committing sin, John says here that God will bring them back to their senses through our prayers for them. God will restore them, it says here, God will restore them to life. And God will give him life. God promises to bless the prayer made on behalf of a brother or sister in sin. Maybe such prayers have some kind of special power before God because they are prayers in fulfillment to the command to love our brothers, as it even talks about in verses uh, 14 and 15. That we know that he hears us in verse 15... And whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And he's saying, this is what you should ask of him. This is, lines up with his desires. If you see a brother or sister in sin, you're not judge and jury. You pray for them. And God will restore their life in Christ. They'll restore their spiritual life. Surely we love each other best when we pray for each other. Now, that's not normally what I saw in church. If someone started dabbling in something that we did not understand or blatant sin, we ostracized them. We pushed them away instead of trying to love them, to show grace to them. And I know that is a, it takes a lot of wisdom from the Holy Spirit to know what posture. Titus says, warn a person once and then a second time. And if they don't correct their behavior, then have nothing to do with them. I think John here is speaking of the first and second time that we are... He says, oh, what a divisive person is what uh, Titus says. But there's another kind of sin that John's talking about here. Or less. maybe we should say it, a sinful resolve that represents the hardness of heart so severe that the person never comes back from it. John says, this person dies... And either that means that the believer physically dies or that this person's sin shows that they were never alive in the first place. I'm not exactly sure. And you might say, well, how do I know if I've committed that sin? Listen, as long as you're alive and there is a chance to repent, if it hasn't led to your death, then you can still repent. And some say, well, pastor, maybe I've hardened and I've sinned so much that I've hardened my heart. Listen, as long as you want to repent, repent and come back into right relationship with Jesus. Just as a, a, as a side of, of wisdom, I would caution you, if you see a believer die prematurely, it's not wise to speculate what sin they committed that led them there. That's just, that's just free. I'll give that to you, especially at their funeral. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. This is the new nature that is continual evidence that we're not of the world. And it brings reassurance to our own heart. Some of us have been saved a long time and we just don't remember what it's like to be lost, to be confused. I love how the book of Proverbs says this, in Proverbs twenty four sixteen. We're, we're going through Proverbs series in equipping class. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. The righteous man, the man who's right with God, falls and stumbles seven times and rises again. If you're watch, watching a, a man walk through the boardwalk. Through Target, and you see him uh, trip over nothing and he falls, you chuckle and you might just point it out to your wife. Hey, <laughs> look at that guy, he just tripped, that's funny. And if he does it twice and he looks like he's about to do it again, what do you do? You video him falling again and you send it to your friends who aren't there. And then if he still can't get his act together and he falls a fourth and fifth time, you post the video on TikTok. So you can, you know, get a lot of views and it might go viral. And if he falls a seventh time, you think, well, maybe there's something wrong with him and you feel bad for posting such video on TikTok and sending it to your friends. Righteous people fall so much, sometimes it seems that they can barely walk. But the righteous man, the righteous woman... The righteous teenager, although they fall, they get up again. They repent again. They place their faith in the chair again. They are seated in submission to Christ again. Here's the point. And when I invite the band up, we're going to sing and think through some of this. Your salvation is not demonstrated by never falling, but by what you do when you fall. Conversion is not sinless perfection. It's a new direction. And so if I ask you, how's it been lately walking with God? don't tell me about the time when you were in fourth grade and you said a prayer. Tell me about the posture of your heart on Jesus, submitted to Jesus, your hope in Jesus. Tell me about the conviction of sin that he still brings, that you repent of. I had to repent last night of some things. And it seems to me the the more I walk with God, now for Thirty years, the more I repent of, and now I'm not just repenting of the things I did. I'm repenting of the motives of my own heart. For those of you in here that have been in church a long time, let me just, or or for those who have never heard it, let me just summarize the gospel for you: that you were so sinful. That the very Son of God had to leave heaven, be born on earth, take on humanity, struggle and tempted in many ways just like you and I, but still lived a sinless life, went to a cross to be crucified for your sins. That he took upon himself your condemnation so that you could walk in freedom. You were so sinful that Jesus had to do that. But yet you were so loved that Hebrews says that it was a joy for him to do that. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And I don't want us to talk about the prayers that we prayed. I want you to have some time this morning to think about the posture of your heart. Is not current faith in Jesus? And yes, absolutely, that may have been expressed through a prayer. And it may have been genuine when you were four or five or eight or ten. I remember my story. Again, I told you that i have been saved 500 times. I grew up in the church. I was always trying to prove God, prove to God that I was righteous enough i remember when i was 12 years old we had bunk beds we were living in haynesville i was in the top of that bunk bed we had a wednesday night service it was just like every other wednesday night service but the one thing that was different is that the holy spirit grabbed my heart and i couldn't shake it in typical baptist church we were in the my dad was the pastor, and he would, you know, give the altar call. You remember the altar call? And we would sing, I surrender all, or just as I am. And we would sing 17 verses of it. And I remember the Holy Spirit grabbing my heart, and I just did not want to do anything. I wanted just to, what are these people going to think? I'm the pastor's son. I grabbed the pew in front of me so tight, and they stopped singing. And I thought I was through. I got, I got out of the the conviction I was we were done and I ran out of the church we actually lived in a little trailer right next to the church and I remember going going to bed early the Holy Spirit was not done with me just sat there and I was thinking you know what my life is separated from God that I as good as I want to be, and I was a good kid, I, I was trying to earn my way, and I realized at that moment, there's, there's nothing I can do to earn my way. It's all about trusting Jesus. So my dad had some meetings after church, and he came in. He could hear me crying in bed. My dad came in and talked to me. I said, Dad, I know I, I, know I walked an aisle at five years old and was baptized, and I know I got saved at every other camp in between here and there but I don't think it was ever real. I, I never really placed my faith and hope in Jesus. I was placing my faith and hope on my job to perform. And like a loving father does, he didn't condemn me or make fun of me. He said, "Well, let's let's just get that right right here." And we did. It wasn't the prayer. I was already saved at that point. I had already placed my faith in Jesus earlier that night. Can you hear my heart, friends? I do not want you to walk out of here playing a religious game and be part of this group in Matthew 7. And you tell Jesus, you know what I did? I gave gave sacrificially to the Above and Beyond Building Camp initiative. I did that. I went to MC every night and DG every night, and I read my Bible, and I, I, I even served on the kids team. I served on the kids team and the cargo team on the same day. For Jesus, just to say, it's not about those things. Depart from me, because I never knew you. Salvation is about being part of God's family. It's about walking with Jesus. And if you've never done that, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. That we wouldn't walk out of here playing religious games. And and maybe you are a believer and you were genuine in putting your faith in him. And I pray that this, this just brings assurance to you that you walk out more confident than ever, that you are part of God's family with a resolve to be conformed into his image. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your forgiveness of sin. I thank you that you are long-suffering with us. And as we, as we soberly and solemnly in this place, we, we, we imagine ourselves standing before a holy God. And we know all of the sin that has separated us from you. Original sin, the sin that we've done, the sins of commission, the sins of omission, the good we should have done and we didn't do. We know all those things, and they've separated us from you. And now you're inviting us, those that have never placed their faith and trust in you, this morning to do that today, to take a step of faith, to cross a line of faith, to place their faith and hope in you, and not the good they've done, and not their, what their mama or daddy's done or their kids have done, but that they've done, that they've placed their faith and hope in you. And I pray in a room this size, surely there are people that are taking that step today. I pray they rejoice in their salvation today. I pray that there are none that leave like I did that night, full of conviction, but with trying to run from you. You brought us here for this very moment. For the believers in the room, I pray that they walk out with more confidence than they've ever had about what it means to be your kids. That they would fight against the sin that still tempts us. That they would be resolved to proclaim this good news to a world that's lost and desperate for it. God, we love you. Thank you again for your truth. I pray you do in our hearts what needs to be done. As we sing this song in a minute, as we speak to you with our heads bowed, that we listen for your voice. Holy Spirit, speak. Convict of sin. Reassure the believer. Fill doubts with truth. Comfort the broken. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. We're going to sing in a minute. Me and some of the prayer team will be in the back if you'd like to pray. I'd encourage you to spend the time, just a minute or so, at your seats just praying, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and then we'll join in song together. Do what God's leading you to do.